Scofflaws is a show about the history of crime, criminals, and the investigation thereof. There may be discussion of adult themes and generally icky stuff. Also, neither host is a legal professional, and this show does not contain any legal advice. Remember, crime doesn't pay. Unless you're really good at it. Hello, and welcome to the Scott Flaws, a history of law and disorder. My name is Sean, and joining me, instead of Kate this time, is a special guest, Allison. Say hi, Allison. Hello, everyone. <laughs> I'm sorry, it caught me off guard. Um, yeah, Kate uh, Kate will be joining us this week uh, because apparently she is without her laptop and somewhere in Green Bay, I think. Uh, so I've brought in uh, special guest Allison. And Allison, you want to tell the audience something about yourself? Sure. Um, well, one of the reasons why I'm a guest for this particular episode is that I spend a great deal of my time researching Renaissance and Victorian criminal activity, specifically scams, uh, for some of my work at the Bristol Renaissance Fair. Yes, if uh, if uh, astute listeners will remember, that was more or less what our last episode was about, and will probably be several more episodes going forward. Because that's mine and Kate's weekends for the next two months. Yep. <laughs> All right, so today we're going to be talking about scams. Now, there's a lot of scams that I've researched for some of the work that we're doing, which is mostly finding old scams to adapt to modern audiences. And some of these older scams are fascinating. One of my favorites is what's called pig in a poke. And this is where, you know, essentially in like any time in the past up to maybe 150 years ago, you would go to the market and someone would try to sell you a pig or some other small animal that humans like to eat as a meal in a bag. And at some point during the transaction, they switch the bag that contains your pig to a bag that contains something that you don't want to eat or that's much less desirable, like a cat. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm surprised they managed to pull off doing a switch on something as big as a burlap sack. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm amazed at some of the scams people have managed to pull off. <laughs> some of these, though, there were documented ones where there was never actually a pig in the bag. It was just a cat in the bag the entire time. But those were, like, the most gullible of customers. You know, a savvy customer, of course, checks that there is a pig in your bag. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how they could get away with that, considering my cat can't go two minutes without meowing at something. I imagine yeah. it's it's got to be insanely hard to gag a cat. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the nuances were for that. Either I'm guessing the animals were knocked out so that they just didn't move. But in that case, I don't know. In that case, wouldn't you just buy the pig from the butcher? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I, I don't see why the, why you'd have to go to the back alley burlap sack man for your pigs. I don't know. I always... One of my suspicions, and this is partly because a lot of scams that I've studied... 
Like, the reason why something is a scam and not specifically a bad business deal, or in today's capital society, a savvy business deal, <laughs> scams often try to play on someone's innate greed. A lot of the ones that we'll be talking about after this one are more sophisticated and much more like, hey, you want to get in on a really good deal? And so I wonder if in this one it was heavily implied to the customer that the pig was actually stolen. And they were afraid that someone else at the market would recognize their pig if they were to have it outside of the bag. Ah, uh, that sort of stinks of like a Robin Hood style scam where you're scamming someone who's already willing to do something illegal. Yep. A lot of scams follow that pattern because when people think that they're outsmarting you, they tend to have some of their guards down. And so they're more likely to be taken in by whatever you're doing. Isn't that like the one with the, like, I'm going to leave you this fancy violin? Yes. This one is one of my favorites. Uh, if anyone's read the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman, they describe this one in detail in that. And that's where I first heard of it, and one of the first things that got me into scam and, like, uh, criminals through the history. So the violin scam is where, uh, and I'm going to almost extensively quote from this book, so... Forgive me, Neil Gaiman. I love your work. <laughs> Essentially, the setting is, you know, an upper-class restaurant. And an old musician is there eating, and he's a bit down on his heels. And he has his beloved violin with him in a beautiful case. But when the time, time comes to pay his bill, he forgot his wallet in his hotel room. Oh no! And so he leaves his violin, his precious, precious violin, with the manager of the restaurant while he goes to get his wallet. Another customer who just finished their meal nearby asked to take a look at the violin and said, Oh, this is a fine, fine instrument made by the great maker or someone. Oh, I would love to buy this from them. It's priceless. But I must catch my train. Let me leave you my card. And they usually quote some sort of price for the violin, like, you know, this is worth at least $10,000. So they leave their card with the restaurant manager and run off. And then a few minutes later, the violin owner, the musician, comes in with his wallet to pay his meal. And then the restaurant manager has to choose. Does he give him the card in good faith and say, here, you should sell your violin to this guy? Or does he try to buy a violin from this, like, essentially very poor musician for a third of the price? A hundred dollars? However much he thinks he can get away with. So if the scam is successful, they essentially con the restaurant manager into buying a $30 violin for, I don't know, 500 Something like that? Yeah, it, it seems very low risk, because even if it doesn't work, you still have your initial investment into the scam. Yeah. Well, you know, worst comes to worst, you're off the cost of two dinners. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that that's a that's a good one. I remember that in American Gods too. Um, like right, another one I remember from that was like, and I know I know that since that book is written, like banks have taken steps to like prevent this from happening. But just the the look like you belong there sort of scam where. Uh, I think in the book they uh, 
the character who describes it, because I'm trying to be as spoiler-free to this as I can, because American Gods is a really good book, and you should all read it right now. Yes, oh my gosh. Um, the character who's describing it dresses up as a like a like a security guard and goes to uh, like a drop-off box for deposits outside a bank and empties it because he just looks like he's supposed to be there and he's the one who's supposed to be doing that job and just drives away with the deposits everyone left in that deposit box through the day. Yep. I mean, a part of it was also that they had the backup for that because. That security guard, security guard, quote unquote, was actually questioned by a police officer, and he gave him a card to this fake security company that they had made, and they were able to bluff that policeman. Oh man, that's I I I love scams like that where where you're you are sticking it to someone who really does like deserve to be stuck to. Yeah. Did you ever read The Great Train Robbery? I have not read that one. It's a book by Michael Crichton. Now, I can't speak to how accurate it is in terms of the strict historical details. I believe it is pretty accurate because research that I've done independently does match a lot of what's in the book. But in terms of the book actually describing the train robbery that historically happened, the book doesn't do that at all. It completely goes off the rails and does a completely different style of train robbery. But in terms of a look into the Victorian criminal class and how, like, the scams and the relationship between police and criminal and the different classes of criminal and their specialties was, that book is amazing. You know, this is is the time I really wish I had set up an Audible uh, affiliation to do for this episode, but hindsight's always 20-20. Yep. Um. Now, one that I know that we like to do at fair sometimes is the, well, like to set up to mime at fair, is uh, the pigeon drop. You want to talk about that one? Yeah, basically the pigeon drop. um, That one is almost better known today as the Nigerian prince scam, or back then as the Spanish prisoner. Although the pigeon drop is like a catch-all name for any sort of scam where... If you pay a little bit of money, you get a much larger amount of money, or something that's very valuable, like a house. And so, I'm trying to think of another way that it's known today besides the Nigerian Prince scam, and I can't really think of one except for something like a a multi-level marketing. (laughs) It's a it's a it's a reverse funnel, Um, but you're. You know, essentially, you're promised that you will do something in the hope of a bigger payback. It's not a pyramid, it's a triangle. Yep. Aren't most companies structured that way? <laughs> um, I think uh, I think people know, like, the like Nigerian Prince scam is, like, the, the like, email version, like, the impersonal version of it. Um, I think the, the pigeon drop is the, the name that's for the more like, in-person version of it, where you have, like, two people working on one person in person. Yep. A common one for the in-person, and this is done on a much smaller scale, is um, offering to sign over a check. Um, Like, for some reason, 
they can't cash a check, so they want to sign it over to you, and you pay them money, uh, like, a portion of the money on the check. So, like, it's a $500 check, and you give them $100, and then they sign the check over to you so you can cash it and get the full 500 Yeah, and then, it's, then it turns out to be a bad check. Yeah. And I'm trying to... There was a Simpsons episode about this. Sorry, I'm looking for references just to give people a full picture. And I might be the only person who ever watched this episode, but it's called The Great Money Caper. No, I think I remember the one you're talking about, but let, let me see. Um, well, in that episode, they start with kind of a... I don't know what the name of the scam is, actually. It's a one where Bart has a throw pillow that's frosted to look like a cake. And someone will bump into him and he'll drop it and say something like, No, my bar mitzvah cake! And the person who bumped into him will pay him money for the, to replace the cake that they ruined. No, I'll never be a man. Yep, I yep. remember that, that exact one. Yep. Yep. And that was their gateway scam. And from that they worked up and up and up until they were essentially pulling large, like, You've won the Publisher's Clearyhouse dealy. If you sign this $10,000 check, you'll get all this money. And then, <laughs> you know, they con people into signing the check over for a paltry amount of the sum. Yeah, and then Grandpa Simpson reverse cons them in one of his rare moments of supreme competence. Yep. Ah, uh, that also has my ultimate favorite Simpsons line. Call me Mint Jelly, because I'm on the lamb. And then Grandpa Simpson just, like, rides off into the sunset in a stolen car. I'll have to find that one for a drop. And I thought I used up all the, the Simpsons drops I'll ever use on the Black Bart episode. You never will. Nope. Uh, uh... So are there any others that any other scams that you know of that you'd wanna bring up? Um, I mean there's a bunch of small time scams, like I'm always I always instinctively want to talk about the the big scams that people can either go, Whoa, I can't believe they pulled that off, or where they go, Whoa, I recognize that I know someone or I almost fell for that scam. Um but a lot of like the most successful scams to quote American Hustle, the reason that the scammers are successful is they know exactly the level at which to play it. If you get too big, you get noticed. And so a very common one was land scams, where you are selling people land, and usually the people pulling the scam would target uh, immigrants, people who couldn't speak the native language very well and so might not be able to read the official documents, and they would sell someone a piece of land, but the land never belonged to them in the first place. Yeah, I got a bridge to sell you in Brooklyn. Essentially, yeah. And so I've seen that, like, I've run ex examples of that done with actual land for houses, but I've also seen it done with things like cemetery plots, which is just heartbreaking. Oh. Yeah. That, that's terrible. That, that's falling out of the kind of scam that I like to hear about, where it's like the Robin Hood-esque play on someone's yeah. greed, and that's just playing on someone's suffering. That's that's no good. Yeah. Oh, I do have another one that does play on someone's greed, now that I think about it. Alright, let's hear it. This one is called the Glim Scam. It has a bunch of names. Glim is what I've heard. 
And uh, this one was featured in Zombieland. Uh, Ooh. Yep. Oh, wait, no, I remember that movie. Okay. <laughs> Essentially, um, you know, for this one, to set the scene, you're at a gas station. And a woman frantically comes up to you, the gas station cash register person, saying, I've lost my engagement ring. And she's gorgeous and in distress and driving an expensive car. And the ring is worth $10,000. Oh, if you find it, I'll give you a reward. I have to catch a flight so I can't stay. And so she writes down her contact information and uh, a description of the ring, whatever. Gives that to the, ca the cashier and leaves. And then sometime later, but still during that same cashier's shift, someone comes in and finds the ring in the parking lot in a very obvious way, so the cashier sees them finding it. And then the cashier has a choice. Same thing with the violin. Do they just, you know, give the contact thing to that person who found the ring and have them contact him, or do they buy the ring and then try and get the money back? And then, of course, they never get any money, and the ring is like costume jewelry. Yep. No, I, I remember that bit. Uh, well, at this point, I mean, in my day job that we shall never speak of aside from tangentially, um, I do run into a lot of scams a lot, and I do sort of just want to throw a few of these out there as just PSAs to stop to try and help stop people from falling for them. Um, there are some truly heartbreaking ones right now. The most there are. I mean, you've probably heard about this one. Uh, this was... Someone tried to pull this on my grandma, but luckily she was too deaf to hear the phone call. Um, they called pretending to be one of my cousins, saying, like, I'm in Spain, someone's stolen all of my money and my passport, and I need you to send me money via Western Union. And apparently they had a lot of details about my cousin. So, you know, it probably would have worked if my grandma could you know, hear people on the phone. Yeah. Yeah, or or like that, the ones where it's like, this is this is the hospital, uh, so-and-so relative yeah. needs expensive operation. And and it, nowadays it seems like, instead of asking for straight-up money, they, they're really into asking you for, like, gift cards. Because that's less likely to be traced. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that's, that's exactly it. Yep. And... I mean... The only thing I can really say for our listeners, like, I mean, I love researching scams, and there's two common things I noticed through almost all of them. They all try to play on your emotions. Either greed, which is a very easily accessible emotion, I'm sorry to say. All of us have it. Or something like worry, anxiety. Sometimes, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but anger is not a good lever for this kind of thing. Happiness isn't a good lever, but like, Greed and the fear that you might miss an opportunity, or anxiety and the fear that someone you care about is in trouble, are pretty powerful instigators or emotional levers that they can pull. And so if you ever come across a situation where it seems too good to be true, or it seems like you can really pull it over on this person and cut a smart business deal, it, it's much. it's very good to take a second look. Especially if yeah. you know well, or even someone you know well, because people all can kind of be interesting at times. Yeah, and it's a good rule of thumb, just remember that no no IRS representative or doctor's office or police officer is going to ask you to send them iTunes gift cards. That just isn't going to happen in reality. Nope. 
Well, that's that sounds like a, a good note to to end the episode on. Um, I know this has been a little bit different from what we normally do. This has been more anecdotal than than we usually do. But um, thank you all for for listening, and uh, please visit us at our Facebook Scofflaws: A History of Law and Disorder, or visit our Patreon because we're still waiting for that one that one lucky first subscriber. <laughs> <laughs> um, as always, email us at scofflawspodcast at gmail.com. Um, I want to thank Allison for uh, for coming in and helping out with this episode. It was kind of last minute, and I do appreciate you helping me out with this one. No problem. Happy to be on. Yep. Thank you. Um, is there anything that you'd want to throw out there for the audience to find in regards to you? Um. Honestly, just... Uh... If you get a chance, come and check us out at the Renaissance Fair. You might see some scams that we described in this episode being pulled on unsuspecting people. Well, okay, they'll be very suspecting. Yeah, no, we we aim to fail. Yep. All right, so, yeah, in that case, we'll uh, move on to the end here. Um, as uh, listeners already know, and Allison, I don't know if you've listened to any of the podcast, actually, but the way that I usually close this out is... Uh, by doing three seconds of research to find a stupid or silly law somewhere here in these United States of ours. Oh, you mean like the law in Florida where you can't play chess underwater? Yeah, exactly like that one. Yep. Um, and let's see here. I had one and then the page closed out because of some plugin that's that we have on the web browser here. Um, let's see here. What was it? Okay, here it is. Um, for Pennsylvania, it is contrary to Pennsylvania law to discharge a gun, cannon, revolver, or other explosive weapon at a wedding. Huh. <laughs> yep. Nope. I guess, uh, I guess, uh, Pennsylvania weddings used to get pretty rowdy. That is incredibly specific. They usually are. Uh, <laughs> Alright, well, again, thank you all for listening. This has been uh, Scoff Laws, A History of Law and Disorder. Um, come back next week where hopefully we will have Kate again and she will uh, probably do more research than we did in the 30 seconds it took us to plan this episode. And <laughs> thank you again, Allison, for uh, joining us today and uh, just talking about random weird scams. Yeah, no problem. Alright, bye all. That's where I'll cut in the interstitial music, and I'll, whenever you want to, start talking about scams. Sure.